I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome once again to Football Belongs. I'm Richard Bayless. Just a reminder, the podcast and chapter are different to each other. So we recommend you listen and read to get the full experience in whichever order suits you. For now, though, it's over to your host, David Davudovich. Thanks, Rich, and welcome to the penultimate Football Belongs podcast for this series. Today's theme is major events, and joining us are two of the protagonists from the unheralded 2015 Asian Cup. Ex-Socceroos coach Ange Postacoglu joins us from Yokohama. Konnichiwa. Which you are, David, and that's as far as we'll go with the Japanese, mate. <laughs> Very good, same here. Football Australia <laughs> Chairman Chris Niku, who was part of the 2015 Asian Cup Organising Committee. Welcome. Good to be here. Also joining us in the studio, sports reporter Richard Hines, who's covered major events extensively home and abroad. Good to be with you, David. And the cast is incomplete without Football Belongs series author and inspiration, John Didelitzer. Welcome back. Glad to say that I inspired so many things, David. You've done a sterling job, JD, and uh, we'll get on to another one uh, in a moment. Now, John, the 2015 Asian Cup final, the pulsating game when James Troisi scored the dramatic extra time winner. That's the game you've chosen to cover through the major events lens. Why have you chosen this game? Yeah, thanks, David. I think this whole series, there's two fundamental underpinnings of the football belongs concept. The first is that football is a fundamental part of the Australian experience. The second is notwithstanding this, it continues to live outside the mainstream and sits outside our mainstream institutions. Now, through this series so far, and this will be the last of our substantive discussions, we looked at multiculturalism. And there's a compelling argument that, but for football, Australia doesn't become the multicultural paradise that it is, you know? The destiny of the First Nations people is vastly different, but for football. Um, it's inspiration of someone like Charles Perkins to go to university, to become a leader of his community, to, to force the, ref, not force the ref, referendum in 77, but play a major role. Um, the way football's been able to tra- transcend state borders that we don't see in other areas. So gender equality through the Matildas. Soccer has played this enormous role in shaping modern Australia, yet it sits outside our mainstream. And major sporting events speaks to that theme incredibly loudly in that a critical thread of being Australian, of growing up Australian, is tracking our success or otherwise at major sporting events. It's assessing our hosting of major sporting events. It's attending those events. So how do we assess the Asian Cup through that prism? How how did it push... Yeah, because... Objectively, it was an incredible success, yet we look back now, six or seven years on, and the statue at the front of a stadium is not James Troisi scoring a goal, it's Billy Slater and the other guy, Cameron Smith, out of Amy Park. So speaking personally, the Olympic Games, the Commonwealth Games, shaped my perceptions of being Australian more than anything. We took enormous pride in hosting the events in, in Sydney and even speaking to my, my grandfather about Melbourne. Um, the fact we introduced colour TV to ensure it coincided with the 1956 Olympics. There's been this massive social shift through Australia as a consequence of these major events, of which soccer has been a massive part. You know, the, 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 the largest attendance at the 56 Olympics was the final that was played between Russia and, or the Soviet Union then in Yugoslavia. The opening match of the Sydney 2000, or the opening event of Sydney 2000 was a soccer game between Australia and Italy at the MCG. So... The question then is, why hasn't the Asian Cup delivered the same type of... um, Why isn't it embedded in Australian life the same way those events was, given the wonderful success that it was? Very good. We'll delve 
into that Asian Cup of 2015 in a moment, uh, the wonderful tournament that it was. But first, can I get each of you to reflect on what major events meant for you growing up? Ange Postacoglu, let's start with you. Yeah, it's, um, you know, going on from, from what JD was saying, I mean, it's it was such a uh, ingrained part of sort of growing up in Australia. I mean, aside from the, the, the kind of football aspect, because for me, yeah, obviously the World Cup in 74 is currently the first sort of major tournament I remember uh, having a mass- massive impact on me. But then, I, you know, it was always the, the, the things we hosted in Australia that inevitably... Um, made an impact and permeated through through all your life. I mean, bizarrely, and, and to, to just give you an example, um, you know, I'm obviously Greek born and, and um, you know, my, my old man um, sort of sporting uh, landscape was football followed by football followed by football. <laughs> um, you know, grow, growing up in Melbourne, it, 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 it's, it's, you get exposed to so many things. And as a young guy, I was, uh, not just me, I think all the guys have, my generation, we got so um, such a wonderful kaleidoscope of sports that we could fall into, and the major events played a big part in that. So, I, so if, if I, you know, even something like a Commonwealth Games, and this is where I think it gets really bizarre as to how much sport plays a part in, in your upbringing, particularly here in Australia, is that if I mention a name like um, Rob Perella, oh, who was a long champion, <laughs> he's done it again. He has done it again. Two magnificent bowls from Perella. What what the hell should, should a, you know, a Greek-born kid and a Croatian kid know about lawn bowls? Seriously. And if I say the name Rob Perella, we all know who it is. Oh. Right? And we have nothing in common with, with that sport, that whole way of thinking. But yeah. I guarantee you that JD and all the guys, we set up a little lawn bowls thing in our hallway and we were we were trying to replicate yep. what Rob Perella was doing. Now, yep. that's that goes to show you the effect sport has on the Australian upbringing, or used to have. I, I, I kind of think society's changed a little bit in Australia, but that's how much we were so enraptured by sport. And, and that's the impact of major events, you know. So then, of course, you, you go on to the Olympics and your Kathy Freeman moments and all those kind of things obviously influence you amazingly in the whole country. But it was even those moments of, like I said, a Commonwealth Games. Um, for me, from a football perspective, the world the world youth um, cup we had in, in Australia was also a, a massive mm. thing because all of a sudden that what we loved about our game, that international perspective, came to our, you know, um, sort of... Uh, right on into our living rooms and our, our not just our living rooms because it wasn't our living room sorry but into our backyard 81 or 93 I mean, you're referring to Ange? 81 81 81 for me that was the one because we had steve blair in it and blair was a yeah. bit of a hero of mine and i ended up playing with him he's kind of one of the biggest influences in my football career and just watching play i remember the final you know west germany against qatar was pelting down with rain i mean but this was the world game in our at our you know backyard and and like I said, when when a Commonwealth Games can have that much of an impact on me with with a sport like lawn bowls, imagine what it did have in football there, and it, it certainly played a massive role, uh, I guess, in, in my upbringing, sport in general. I mean, obviously, football is my my main sport, but that Australian sort of pride in anything we did on an international stage, um, you know, was something that I think certainly benefited me in, in, in my life and in, in my professional life, but also in shaping me and my childhood because um, back then, I think growing up, to be Australian meant that, you know, you took pride in these in these things. And it's why it was always such a, a barrier for me when I got older and, and, and seeing why football couldn't penetrate in the same way. Chris, not sure if you want to expand on uh, your lawn bowls knowledge, but uh, what did major events mean to you as a kid? <laughs> Cracker Jack the movie? No. Uh, <laughs> look, for me growing up, things were on a four-year four cycle. You had the Olympics every four years, you had the World Cup, and you hung out for those to come around. And uh, they were two years apart, basically, and uh, life went around those. And the Olympics in particular brought to the surface sports that most of us didn't necessarily follow day to day. But there was great national pride in the Australian teams competing no matter what it was. So um, certainly that's shaped 
my experiences. I think like most of us, we like sport generally. For many of us, it's around football. But those two events that are in the Commonwealth Games uh, are the moments that bring Australians together with national pride. Richard Hines? Yeah, I've probably got a slightly different perspective. I grew up in a little country town, so everything that wasn't in the 70s, you know, Warwick and Bill versus Dimboola at Anzac Park on a Saturday afternoon was hugely exotic and new to us. So everything televised that we came through. I remember probably the most kind of seminal event of that period was the Montreal Olympics in 1976 where Australia flopped horribly. Mm. And I remember sitting in, they actually put the TV up on the big stand in the classroom so we could watch Steve Holland win what would have been Australia's only gold medal. And of course he got beaten by the American (laughs) And, and that, I think predicated the building of the Australian Institute of Sport because we'd gone so badly. Fraser coughed off a lot of money. And that's critical. Sorry to cut yeah. you off there, Richard. Yeah. That's like a critical theme of this is that our, non, our, our inability to compete successfully at that level instigated broad social policy change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the creation of the, eight, the Australian Sports Commission and, and so on. Yeah. yeah, it did in Olympics. And, and that's a, a recurrent theme with Olympics are regenerating over various periods. But the one event I do really remember that probably cuts to this program is 1973, watching in my bedroom on a little black and white TV, Jimmy Mackay scored the, score the winner to get um, Australia into the its first World Cup. And this is, predates the John Aloisi moment. And to me, it's, it's almost bigger in my mind than the Aloisi moment because it was so rare, so exotic, seeing this guy on this grainy footage from Hong Kong against South Korea um, <laughs> score this goal. And none of us in this little country town, really had seen football. We would have called it soccer then. Played it but the next day in the playground. We were all mucking around with a, with a soccer ball. But uh, cutting to your theme, why doesn't that re- resonate further? Why hasn't events that have occurred beyond that occurred f- further? And, it, you know, I, I know we're going to have a, a, a larger conversation about this, but that's the one that probably is the first well ahead of the Asian Cup experience about the possible bubble being created but not going to that next level. A bit of self-promotion or Optus promotion anyway. Uh, the late Jimmy Mackay and the Scottish cohort uh, will feature as part of the Football Belongs Series 2 videos, which will be coming out shortly, uh, starting in April. So look out for those. Uh, the 2015 Asian Cup, it was an unbelievable tournament. The Socceroos won, of course, thanks largely to uh, the great Ange Postacoglu, who's joining us today. Uh, on and off the field, it was it was unbelievable. I'll run through some stats. So... 2.5 billion TV viewers globally compared to uh, 3.7 billion for the 2000 Olympics and 1.5 billion for the 2018 Commonwealth Games. Uh, aggregate crowd attendance of 650,000, and Chris can talk to this, but uh, I think the LOC forecast around 350,000, so a massive uh, uplift on initial projections. Uh, Commonwealth Games, for instance, had 331,000 visitors. Uh, and if you compare it to the 2007 Rugby League World Cup, 382,000 uh, fans went through the gates. So uh, certainly dominated conversation on social media uh, with fans over the continent. Three, 13 million minutes of event action watched uh, on the official YouTube channel. And uh, the official hashtag had a reach of 3.5 billion. So whichever way you carve it up, those numbers were massive. Now, Ange, I'll throw to you. Um, you understand sense of occasion better than most coaches and, and better than most full stop. What did the Asian Cup mean to you? Because you seem to have an eye on it from the moment you were appointed Socceroos boss. Yeah, I did. Uh, I'll be honest. I mean, when I when I got appointed, I mean, as people remember, it was uh, kind of you know um, we'd already qualified for the World Cup and uh, we'd had a couple of pretty bad defeats and and you know the the FFA decided to move on Holger and um, there was a lot of discussion at the time about you know and a lot of advice to me that you know it was better I kind of skipped the World Cup that they appointed a you know Van Marwick type for the World Cup and then you know I take over for. For after that to prepare for the Asian Cup and use the Asian Cup as a preparation to build a new team. And, you know, I was having none of that. I, I thought it was a wonderful... Yeah, sorry, which is not surprising by me. But anyway, um, I, 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 I kind of saw, well, i got 15 months to win an Asian Cup here and why would I waste the opportunity to, to kind of test ourselves at, at a World Cup and, and if I'm going to regenerate this team, you know, give them some real heat and exposure in the highest possible level. I mean, that, that can only be a positive thing. I didn't I didn't see a downside to it. I think, you know, people more worried about me and potentially us, you know, copping a drubbing in, in a World Cup and how would that affect my 
sort of reputation, my ability to sort of build things. And I remember when I did sit down with, um, you know, Sir Frank Lowy and, and even David Gallup, you know, they were kind of, and certainly Frank was very sort of persistent in saying, look, are you sure? You know, we can, you've got the job after the World Cup. Don't stress about it. We're not going to change our minds. You know, he'd sort of set his heart on having an Australian coach. Um, so, you know, you don't have to do the World Cup. And, and like I said, for me, I thought the Asian Cup was a, an unbelievable opportunity. And look, maybe I kind of romanticised it in my head a little bit that, that winning it would be something that would be a seminal moment in Australian football, knowing how I knew the tournament would be a success because we always hold, every tournament we host in any sport is always successful because of the, the public uh, getting so um, sort of enraptured in, in, in anything like that. And I, I thought if we can win it on home soil, winning it's great, but winning it on home soil would be a seminal moment. So I kind of had a 15-month plan of, okay, everything we do from now on and you know, every decision we make is about making sure we, we have a good crack at it. And, um, you know, we, we didn't have a, a great build-up in terms of results along the way. Um, particularly in 2014, you know, we did the World Cup, we didn't win there, and then we didn't win a, I think we won one game the whole 12-month calendar leading into the Asian Cup. And, you know, I've said it a few times, I'd have discussions with Frank, and it was pretty clear for Frank this was it for him. Um, you know, I, I got a sense from him that this is the one he wanted to win and he would he would probably walk away. So, and, and you know, anyone who's, who's met Frank will know he, he's pretty old school. He's different generation, um, you know, my father's generation, um, pretty straightforward. And that kind of works with me anyway. I, I kind of work well in that sort of scenario. And he would make it pretty clear that Ange, at, at the beginning, he was saying, look, it's something I want to win. And I said, well, that's what I plan to do. And then the results weren't coming in the build-up. And he'd kind of say, well, are we going to make semifinals? And I said, don't worry, we'll make semifinals. We'll, we'll win it, you know. And then I think the last meeting I had to him, he said, look, I don't want to be embarrassed. He said, I'm going to have people from all around the world. Um, I don't want to be embarrassed. Make sure you don't, you know. We, I said, look, uh, I appreciate um, I appreciate the support, uh, Chairman, but, uh, you know, my plan is to win it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had this mission that, like I said, I, I felt it was a real opportunity, um, a seminal moment. And, you know, as people know, I was born in Greece and, and I saw the way they still talk about the Euros, winning the Euros in Greece. And they've only qualified for a couple of World Cups like us, I think three, you know. Um, so for them, qualifying for a World Cup is great. But if you ask any Greek, what's the greatest moment in, in Greek football? It's winning the Euros. Um, and I thought that would be sort of the impact we could have, um, you know, uh, by winning the Asian Cup. So for me, it was it was the primary target when I first took over. That was that was for me the the, the thing that I wanted to complete uh, above, uh, you know, above everything else. Chris Nicker, you're uh, well, nodding and smiling well, next I'm, to me here. I'm listening there with interest because probably now is a good time to share what the inner thinking was around uh, <laughs> the uh, Asian Cup. So Frank trying to keep a lid on things. I think um, the pass mark was the quarterfinals. The semis would have been fantastic and there was no talk about actually making the final. And yeah, I'm, wow. sit I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I'm pretty sure that's not the way the coach is thinking. Um, so um, I think Ange hit the nail on the head from Sir Frank's perspective um, it was the first chance for Australia, as still a relatively new member of the AFC, to um, discharge their social responsibility and putting on a, a tournament. And obviously, he didn't want to be embarrassed in that sense. Um, but I think even he would say he was uh, didn't script the ending and, the, and winning it. He, he hoped for it, um, but the fact that it came was unbelievable. So anything less than quarterfinals, and Ange would have got the bullet. I'm not sure how his bonus scheme worked. I'd have to go back and look at his contract. But no, this, it was always going to the finals. Richard Hines, um, you've covered many major events uh, in your time. What was your sense of the Asian Cup leading into it? It's funny, I had, a, I had an interesting build-up to it because I was at the very last minute sent to Riyadh for the, uh, in 2014 for the Asian Champions League final um, to see the Wanderers somehow hang on after 25 shots, you know, and some fairly handy refereeing. <laughs> It's unbelievable scenes here. The miracle has happened. Western Sydney Wanderers have unbelievably lifted the AFC Champions League against all the odds.
But it was one of the most amazing events I've ever been to. Just the crowd, the build up, being in, if you've ever been to Riyadh, you know, just what a surreal place it is. And for an Australian team to, who were basically captive in their hotel for a week, Journo's dream. We had them all there. <laughs> they were asking to be interviewed by the end. It was great. But for them to win that, it just gave me a real taste. As an outsider, I'm a generalist. As you know, I'm not a football writer per se. And it gave me a real sense of what's going on in Asia, what the possibilities were. And then I remember coming back and there was a launch where Michael Brown and I think Alison Hill, who was working, they did a really good job. And I could tell that the tournament was going to be really well connected with community. They did a great job setting it up, aligning countries with teams, you know, it's kind of adopt a team or, you know, align your local um, um, nationals with, with that team. If they were in the, in mm-hmm. the carp, they went into schools. I could tell that. I was just always worried whether Australia, though, had a sense, like I did, of how big this was. Mm-hmm. And, and we were already in an era where Asian Champions League games in Australia against A-League teams were played before crowds of two or 3,000 on a Wednesday night. And I think it was because people didn't have a sense of what the competition was. I don't know whether it was the timing or, or whatever, but we didn't understand Asia. And it was like 20, 30 years after Paul Keating had dragged us into Asia, we viewed our achievements in Asia when we were in Asia. And I think, you know, Ange's achievement over there was rightly lauded and he did it in Asia, but we don't see Asia coming here as being the same thing. We don't really see ourselves as Asia in that way. And so I worried about it from that perspective in a sense, but but also saw the great possibilities of it, having had that amazing experience in Riyadh. John, what, what were you thinking leading into the tournament? Yeah, I wasn't. I was probably preoccupied with a million other things, to be honest. I was trying to run an A-League club at the time, and anyone who's been involved in an A-League club, you understand that your chance to actually even speak to your partner and your kids becomes zero. So it sort of snuck up on me, to be honest. I, I think my greatest disappointment was Aaron Moy wasn't picked Ange. That's probably the one thing that sticks in my head about the tournament. I think, An- <laughs> I think Antonis came in as the, um, as the sort of 23rd man at, at Moy. And I remember thinking, how the hell? Do you- Is he watching the A-League or what? <laughs> you know, Moy's just cutting it up and he's playing unbelievable. Anyway, but what struck me most was that... How long t- have you wanted to get that off? Yeah, a long, <laughs> long time, Ange. You don't understand long, long how many times time. he's mentioned that to me, Ange. How did he get picked? Like, I remember thinking, like... Yeah, okay. as, know, a, as a City fan, I'll back him up yeah. 100%. You got that one right. I, I even... Because he actually scored... He actually, as we came back, because we, we sort of had a few weeks off, we came back after the final, and he scored this ripper against the Wanderers. He sort of cut in on his right, went bang. Um, and look... Now, when I speak on these podcasts, I try to pull out my polished, you know, professional voice, but it was very much time. What the hell's going on, man? How did he not play? How did he not get picked? Uh, I, was, I was apoplectic. But anyway. Give Andrew right of reply. No, no, no. Anyway, I, I, I say that in jest. I, I think the main thing was, what I'm saying is that I was sort of preoccupied with stuff. And it wasn't until I sat down to watch the final that I thought, okay, great, here we go. And I remember viewing it thinking, this is on par with what I'd seen at the World Cup in 2006. The sense of occasion, the build-up, the people in the stadium. There was this gravity to the game that I hadn't really picked up. I mean, I'd sort of watched, you know, the Timmy goal against China was incredible. I'd gone to the games in Melbourne, you know, in between whatever I was doing. And, you know, it was there, but I wasn't totally embedded to it. But when that game happened, I thought, mate, the same as you thought, Ange, I thought this is a seismic moment for the sport. We've conquered one of our Everests, and here's a chance now to actually... Um, build on this. And it should, in my mind, it should have been one of those signs on the roadmap that says, we're now here, we've arrived, because the game itself was just as good a game of football as ever watched. I mean, I always count my favourite games as being Australia-Japan at the World Cup in 2006, um, Australia-Croatia from 2006, and also the Australia-Brazil game from the Women's World Cup last year when we won 3-2 after being 2 down. And that game, this game that we're talking about now sits alongside that. The drama, the quality, the sense of occasion, the um, uh, the opposition were great. Like, it was our fierce Asian rival. Um, Sun scored the equaliser in what they the 90... 91st minute. So the game itself was just off the radar. And I've always wondered now when I reflect, okay, in the moment I thought, yeah, here we are. And six years on, I'm thinking, okay, where, why didn't it embed itself as one of these moments that turns the tide for Australian football. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I've got a theory as always, but I'll share that later on. We've got a bit of time. Uh, like Richard, I was a little bit uh, concerned uh, leading into the tournament, uh, being low-key. But once it kicked off, it, it was a massive event. And my highlight of the tournament, aside from the Socceroos, obviously, was that cracking game in Canberra, Iran versus Iraq, where Iraq won on penalties. That game had it all. The atmosphere was absolutely electric. But, Chris, from an organising committee's viewpoint, what was what was the feeling beforehand and how did you feel once the event started? Yeah, so unlike, say, the Women's World Cup that's coming, this was a local organising committee one, so Mm. it was heavily funded by state and federal government, so we had um, those representatives sitting in the board meetings making sure we're making sound decisions. So we weren't worried about attendances at the Socceroos matches. We always felt they would be well attended, but getting bums on seats and putting on a good spectacle was a priority. And you mentioned Michael Brown before. He did a lot of work going up and down the country and connecting communities, and that meant that they did turn out for the games. And um, uh, But there was a lot of work behind the scenes to, to get it to that level. Once we got to the final, it was a massive occasion. I believe we were all at the event. Were you there, Richard? Yeah, I was. Fantastic. It was not uh, me, David. Watch no. it from home. Just so you know. Working feverishly. So over seventy six thousand about Aaron Moore. <laughs> <laughs> he boycotted. Quick ride and reply, Ange, if you like. No, 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 no mate, I have never said I was perfect, but I'll get something wrong. I'll, you know, it, my my old man, you know, passed away, but he's you know, he said to me, I have said the story, I gave him the medal, he said, Look, if you'd made better decisions, it wouldn't have gone into extra time. So I'm kinda of used to that uh, I'm kinda of used to that kind of feedback, mate, from, uh, from people. So it's all good. It's all good. Didn't he say if you had Aaron Moy wouldn't have gone to extra time? Yeah, probably. probably one of the decisions, yeah. Well, one guy whose uh, selection had no conjecture at all was Maslawongo. He got the player of the tournament, scored the opening goal in the 45th minute. A cracking goal as well. The first touch when Trent Sainsbury drilled in that pass and scored from outside the box. And then uh, Song Hyun Min obviously equalised 91st minute just as uh, a few people, I'm not sure what Andrew was thinking at the time, uh, were thinking about holding that cup aloft. But of course, it went into extra time and James Troisi uh, hitting home the winner from Tommy Urich's cross. Ange, your reflections of that game itself. Yeah, look, it was, um, you know, we, we, we obviously, like I said, in my mind, that's where I, I pictured us. But obviously, when, when you're going through the tournament, and we kind of grew into the tournament from the first game, we were really good. And then we lost to, to South Korea in, in the last group game. But, you know, I, I rested a few that day because I thought, well, if we're going to go deep in the tournament. So I remember I think I left out Timmy and, and Mille and a couple of others. Um, and we lost 1-0, but, you know, we gave a good account of ourselves. So... Then the, the quarters and the semis, we, we, were, we were pretty strong, but uh, I had no doubt that South Korea were a fantastic side. So I knew we, we were a challenge. But, you know, my my sort of thought process is going to all big games is uh, is pretty much the same, is that you, uh, just my history, I guess, in the game is that every sort of big game I've been involved in, there's always been some drama um, attached to it. And, uh, you know, I think... Um, you know, during the game, we, we, the game was a pretty tight one. And they were a fantastic team and they put us under a little bit of pressure, but we coped okay. Like you said, we scored. But, you know, I, I got this uneasy sense probably with 10 minutes to go that, you know, that the story wasn't over. Um, just like I said, just because of my history and sort of big games. And um, as you mentioned, I, the, the trophy was literally within touching distance of me. So, you know, that. They, they bloody bought it out with 10 minutes to go, which I, I got annoyed with. It's, it's kind of just. <laughs> It was just too close to me for me to feel comfortable, um, and you know, you know how football works. I mean, that's mm. that's that's the beauty of it is that one moment can change everything. And um, you know, when they scored, you know, I just felt that the energy sort of sap out of the whole stadium, and 
even with the players, you know, you're kind of thinking to, to be so close. Um, I was literally within touching distance of the trophy, but even metaphorically, we were, you know, we were a minute away from from, from doing something special. And then, uh, yeah, you got to regroup your thoughts and uh, probably because I always prepare myself for, for, you know, the most unique of circumstances. Um, you know, by the time the players came in for the, after the game, I, I had a look around and I had no doubt we, we, we had it in us to win that game in extra time. And, you know, the Koreans had given everything uh, to sort of stay with us. And, uh, you know, once James scored and, you know, we, we were pretty comfortable after that. We actually played some of our best football in extra time, I thought. And, uh, you know, then the whistle goes and it's, and it's uh, you know, anyone who's been in that situation will tell you that that sense of relief um, that comes over you, particularly when you're a coach, um, is just enormous. Australia has done it. The Socceroos, kings of the continent for the first time. They're the champions of Asia in 2015. You don't realise how much you carry on you and, and you know, people think it's a euphoric feeling. It actually isn't. It's, it's more of a, you know, just a release of, of tension and, 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 and everything that's been built up. And, and I enjoy those moments because I usually just sit back and just watch everyone else sort of celebrating and just seeing how happy it makes people. And obviously I had family, friends in, in, in the crowd there, my wife and, um, you know, all those people close to me. So it definitely makes it more special when it happens at home. And um, it was it was a great day. It was a great game. I mean, I, like all those things that happened in my life, I've never watched the game again. Um, you know, every now and then the, the highlights will come across my um, sort of path, but I've never re-watched the whole game um, because those kind of games are perfect memories for me. And if, if I watch it again, I'll probably start sort of analysing whether it could have been better. And I don't, I don't want to do that. It's just a, it's kind of a perfect memory for me. Yeah, and listening to uh, the post-match interview just recently, uh, you certainly were uh, emotional, Ange, as, mo- as emotional as, uh, as I've heard you. And uh, there was that fantastic moment in extra time or in between uh, just before extra time when uh, you, you, you got the players in and you gave them the big rev up and we saw the, uh, the South Korean players down, uh, down on the deck. That seemed to be a real turning point. I kind of said to the players that, you know, it was... We were writing, a, you know, I said that when, when the history of football gets written in Australia, there'll be a chapter on the 2015 Asian Cup and we were writing that chapter, you know. And I'd always said to them that, you know, we we could make it one of the best chapters in the book uh, if, if we did special things. And it's what I said to them at, at, at full time. I said, look, you know, we, we can make this now the real perfect ending because... Um, you know, like all perfect endings, there's always a little bit of a twist, you know, and, and our twist is that we've got to come back from this. And we've worked hard for 15 months to prepare them for for extra time and whatever else needed to happen for us to win that game. So, um, you, know, I did, you know, whether they heard me in that moment or they didn't, I think they heard of me, heard from me enough to believe that, uh, you know, I don't think the words on that moment really made the impact it was it was more you know what we'd done in the lead up that um you know they believed like i said i every one of them was on their feet waiting for me to talk um and i did look at the koreans and they were out on their feet because they were they'd given everything and um you know the, there were some strong leaders in that in that group and uh you know we got our rewards i want to get onto the legacy from the 2015 world uh, asian cup in a moment but uh, any observations from that game any memories boys Richard? Um, well, other than Ange setting an A qualifier for the Olympic 100 metres down the sidelines, which was a highlight for everyone, I think. We replayed that a few times on offsiders uh, the next day. Um, yeah, you know, it's funny. I looked at the highlights again this morning on YouTube, just a three or four minute clip just to prompt my memory. And one thing that really struck me, and this might sound a bit counterintuitive, but when Sun scored... The noise in the stadium is enormous. Like there's a lot of, you know, Korean fans there and neutrals and so forth. And it just reminded me of what a kind of, this sounds really funny, but it was kind of like a happy occasion um, both ways. You know, there's often in football, there's a bit of angst either way and whatever, but it was just a, such a celebration that day. I remember in the stands and whichever way it went, I think because the tournament itself had gone so well, Australia had reached, I think the final was always seen as the absolute minimum, reached that final game. And the win was obviously an enormous achievement and bonus. Ange wouldn't see it that way, but I think from, from maybe for outsiders, 
Um, it was just a happy day and a happy day for football. Um, and I really, you know, that's, that's my abiding memory. So hearing the crowd even cheer as loudly as they did for what would have been, could have potentially been a horrible moment if it had taken the game away from Australia was really kind of surprising, but in, in kind of in line with my memory. Not a bad place on Hume is he? <laughs> there was a carnival atmosphere to that tournament, uh, Chris? Yeah, well, I was actually sitting next to representatives of the broadcaster, right? So, and the game was 1-0, it's gone into uh, 90 minutes, and we were all looking at the clock thinking, let this game finish. And uh, when that equaliser went in, a lot of the oxygen in the stadium got sucked out, right? Because we thought, oh God, here we go. The only ones, up, the only ones happy were the broadcaster, because as they said at the time, you beauty, another half hour of this stuff, and it's uh, <laughs> riding its socks off, right? So... But for the rest of us, it was a very anxious period. Yeah, I, I really loved it because I felt it rounded out what was an incredibly good tournament. Like the, the Iran versus Iraq game was one of the most dramatic. Mm. I don't know if you've got the stats there, Dave. You, you know, you call, you call your company Bruce Media because you name yourself <laughs> after the great Bruce McAvaney. So I'm sure you've got some stat in there somewhere. But the Give Iran, the, the Iran-Iraq game was like breathtaking. It was it was one of the most dramatic matches I've ever watched. So it, there was such a critical mass of. Um, support, passion, love for the tournament, that it was a perfect finale. It really was. It, it, could, it could not have been. You know, I often ask people why there aren't more... I often debate with people why there aren't more sports movies made, given sports such a big part of our cultural existence. There's so few sports movies compared to rom-coms and thrillers and whatever else. It's because you, the stuff that happens on the field can't match fiction. Like, you couldn't be able to script that finale. And, you know... The question is, and as you're posing now, is what was the natural extension of that and how do we actually start embedding those moments um, as part of the Australian zeitgeist? Because at the moment, we're, we're grappling with that. You know, what should have been the high watermark of the game? And we'd all agree that that was the high watermark of the game. Um, we haven't transcended or certainly not, um, you know, through osmosis even entered the, the mainstream of Australian society culturally. I'll throw to Chris first, yeah. considering uh, you're on the, the organising committee. Can you just talk to the legacy uh, of the 2015 Asian Cup in a moment? And we will touch on the 2023 yeah. World Cup later on. It, it depends how you look at legacy. Clearly, I would have liked to have seen some more done in a physical sense. And I think that was partly to do because of the way it was structured, where um, the discussion on legacy um, was actually happen occurred after the event because that's the way the funding ran. Um, but if you're asking me now, sitting on the AFC Exco, what's been the legacy, I think it's actually helped establish Australia in the AFC. Um, we were the new kids on the block. I don't think we would have got the support for something like the Women's World Cup that we did. If people remember, at the start of the Women's World Cup bidding process, there were four Asian countries, the two Koreas, Japan and Australia. And I think putting on a tournament like that gave us greater standing and imprimatur with the AFC. And I think that ultimately helped us. Um, so in an in intangible sense, that was a plus. Um, in a tangible sense, uh, I think there's work that should have been done to get a better result. Ange Postacoglu, I'll give your uh, book a plug, Changing the Game, for those who haven't read it, a must read. I know you touched on the Asian Cup in there, but uh, I guess what, six or so years on, how do you reflect on the Asian Cup from a legacy viewpoint? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, there's two ways to look at it. I mean, I, I think... You know, Chris kind of outlined, I think there was a legacy um, um, in terms of um, the tournament was well run. Um, our reputation within Asia, I think, was was certainly enhanced. Um, but I've, I've said it before, I, I felt there was no football legacy. There was nothing that was tangible for the game, not just in a material sense, Um you know, the next day, you know, the nature of the Socceroos is the next day they all got back on planes and sort of went back to to their, you know, destinations all over the world, back to their clubs. I mean, there was no, you know, there was no dinner at Kirribilli House or wherever else they had these things. There was no honours bestowed upon anybody in that group. There was no, um, yeah. you know, understanding of the magnitude of, of the achievement, the, the magnitude in, in, in the way I saw it. Obviously, others maybe saw it differently. Um None of that existed. And, and for me, that was probably, like I said, I'd built myself up to make it this seminal moment. Um, you know, probably from the day after, I kind of realised that I'd fooled myself 
um, maybe to think in that way because just to, to achieve it, maybe thinking, making it a bigger thing in my mind than, than actually what it in real terms it was and is. I mean, I, you know, when I, when I, I, mean, I think it was probably three or four months later, I actually traveled to Korea because I was doing some scouting, um, you know, around the Asian region for, for the World Cup qualifiers. And I, I went to a, a, a national team Korean game, a friendly game they were playing. And I remember walking to the stadium, and there was this, you know, 40 meter poster of Oli Stilica, their coach, uh, at the entrance, and, a, and a, another 50 meter sort of banner of, um, Key, the captain, and, and Son. And and it struck me there. I thought, geez, we will never see that in Australia. Um, we beat this team. You know, we 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 were the we were the conquerors. And yet the way they were just for making the final treated in their own country, I just thought it just like I said, it was it was for me, and probably that was more an internal thing for me. I'd built it up that literally from the day after it, it kind of dawned on me that. Um, it wasn't what I thought it would be it, and it didn't have the effect I thought it would be. Now, the reasons why, you know, have been discussed many times, um, you know, and, and JD can articulate it better than me and, and, and probably ask, pose the questions more than give the answers about why. Um, but uh, I, I definitely think it was it was a missed opportunity on many fronts. Um, it was indicative of where the game's been for a long time in that we just haven't understood the football significance of things and, and and the soul of football and, and what it can do and what it can mean um, within ourselves as a, as a community forget you know we, we, we kind of always looking for acknowledgement from from outside and other codes and other sports and, and the general Australian public whatever that means but even as a football community I don't think we've we've understood the soul of what the game is and, and have missed many opportunities to to kind of um, understand the the impact that the sport can have on lives if we herald our own if we give ourselves some self-respect and self-esteem and, and and sort of walk out with our heads held high that we've done something special it's almost like within our own game we've, we've we kind of keep our heads down and make sure we don't stick them up too high in case we get them knocked off and so yeah for me it was a it was a little bit of a bittersweet experience that whole thing i I love the build-up. I love the game, uh, but after that, I just felt, you know, I mean, you know, you mentioned James Troisi, the, the goal he scored. Masalongo was nominated for the Ballon d'Or not long after. I mean, an unbelievable, mm-hmm. and rightly so. People may laugh because he was, you know, I mean, where he is in the career, but those kind of things happen because people have special tournaments. You know, Escalacci, his achievements mm-hmm. at a World Cup are no less just because it happened at a World Cup. If anything, it's more. A Paolo Rossi, you know, I mean. Unbelievable moments. That was Maslowongo. For that 30 days, he was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And yet all those kind of things are all in my head, you know, and yeah. outside my yeah. head. I, I, have, I haven't seen them happen anywhere, you know? Yeah, and he hasn't become the folk hero that a Robbie Perella or a Dean Lucan no. or a Tracy Wickham has become because she no. won a couple of golds at the Com Games in 82, you know, and that's that's the whole yeah. essence of this debate is why haven't why hasn't a Maslowongo transcended into our cultural zeitgeist, yet a Robbie Perella has, or a Lloydy. I remember now that that middle distance runner, is it Simon Lloyd or it was just Lloydy, Lloydy, you know, as he's running into the home straight. You're like, why do I remember some skinny dude who was a middle distance runner who had no chance of ever making an Olympic final, you know, yet I remember him winning a Com Com Games gold, you know, and that's, I think, the, the heart of this debate is why, why not? Richard, but even but but that's but that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but just even in terms of the football industry and all the football industry, mm. our community JD mm. is that we're almost embarrassed by it because we because then when we say Masalonga, they say yeah, but he's not he has never played in the Premier League, he's never played you know for a big club. Why are you putting him up? And we're we're afraid to to go that mm. extra step and say no, mate, you're wrong. You know, it's got nothing to do with the Premier League. It's got to do with that. You know what? A guy like Son was in the tournament as well, and yet he wasn't the player of the tournament, Maslowonga was, for that 30 days, it doesn't matter. But we're not strong enough with that. Within our own football community, we're embarrassed. I remember this at the time, we were embarrassed. We were saying, it was almost like a, 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 a sort of a quirky thing that we didn't want to be associated with, that an Australian player has got to that level. You know, we're not comfortable with it, and we should be, because the achievement is the achievement. This is this is being adjudicated by people who have nothing to do with us, that they're putting his name up. Yeah, it's got echoes of a previous 
topic that we covered of cultural cringe. Uh, there's a real convergence with the themes that you're discussing now, Ange, and that whole notion of cultural cringe that we have that's anchored back, in my view, into this colonialism that acts as a barrier on modern Australia. I mean, we don't rate simply, we don't rate what we do in Asia because we don't rate Asia as a nation, as a culture. Asia is there to be conquered. That's our colonial anchor as a community. Asia is not there to be a peer. Asia is not there to be anything but, you know, you look like education is another great example is we don't look to Singapore for education guidance, yet, yet, they're, yet they're the best, they've got the best education system in the world. We look to Asia for fee fodder to bring in students that we can churn through and get fees from. We're continually seeking to appease this mythical English gentleman that may or may not exist. And that's exactly Angie's point. And I, I couldn't agree more wholeheartedly. And I think that sits at the essence of why something like the Asian Cup doesn't resonate, why the heroes of that tournament don't resonate the way they should. Richard Hines? Yeah, if you don't mind me kind of broadening it a little bit, because legacy's been a real hobby horse of mine in my writing days, but... Um, can you imagine a better event than the Sydney 2000 Olympics? I mean, it just had everything. Great moments. Kathy Freeman wins. Kathy lifting, goes up to Graham, takes the lead, looks a winner, draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. What a legend. What a champion. People are laughing at Roy and HG. You know, it just had yeah. feel-good stories, international acclaim. Everything on Fox 8. Everything. It had everything you, you could have in an event. So what's the legacy of that event? The, the, the supposition has always been, oh, more Australians will, you know, run and do all these Olympic events, we'll get better and stronger and so forth. Absolutely not. I mean, I remember after this in, in some subsequent investigations, I struggled to find any studies that had been made because the AOC deliberately don't do studies because they know what the answer is going to be. It's nothing. I think the University of New South Wales did a study that showed people walked a little bit more for about six months afterwards. So why is this? People, t yeah, kids do turn up at a little athletic centre for a while. They realise it's kind of pretty boring because they don't have funding. They haven't moved on from the 1970s. There's lots of kids standing around. They're in long lines because the money hasn't been invested. There's no equivalent of an Oz kick or a, whatever the rugby league thing is or cricket blast in cricket or... Joey's or, you know, whatever the um, football equivalents are because there's been no investment whatsoever at the grassroots because, so it doesn't grow. Um, they made a, the infrastructure investment in my mind was a disaster because of the home bush element. It was, uh, the, they allowed the AFL to hijack what should have been a rectangular stadium and turn it into an oval without the um, utility for the predominant codes in the city. Um, so Olympic legacy is an absolute myth in so many ways. But what happens? They get bailed out. And we mentioned it before, 1976. That was only 20 years after Melbourne. Melbourne, again, of its time, was similar to Sydney in an event. and it's, But it didn't have the tra traction that 20 years later, we weren't even winning a single gold medal. What happens? The government provides the AIS, enormous funding for Olympics, and off we go again. Because we get the Olympics in 2000, more government funding, off we go again. And now we're at 220 and we're struggling in a lot of these Olympic sports because they don't have the traction because the AOC doesn't empower its sports. It smothers them. It, it doesn't give them any um, incentive to grow themselves. What does football learn from this? Well, the question for football, I guess, is why isn't it being getting the same lift that the Olympics get, those Olympic sports? And I know part of the answer is heritage the feel-good factor. I mean, John Coates, the AOC head, can literally stand in Parliament and say, I report to Switzerland, not Australia, and the legacy of my Olympics is a feel-good factor. He doesn't have to give a single um, justification for the hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent on Olympic sports. Football? Crazy. You know, every cent is now being eked out. And I think, to be fair, I think one great opportunity lost was the World Cup bid, and I think you know, we can talk about it endlessly, but I think a lot of political capital was burnt by going at that time we did and by the way it was done. But that's, you know, water under the bridge. But I guess the question football has to ask moving into an event like, and Chris will be asking it and acting on it, moving into an event like the 2023 World Cup is, how do we then leverage that um, that legacy? How do we have a real legacy? How do we make it go through the grassroots, through the infrastructure, not just the moments? Because... 
yeah, I remember Rob, Rob Perella and all of that, but I didn't go lawn bowling and I'm not sure there was a, other than in An- Angie's lounge room, I'm not sure there was a massive lawn bowls boom at the time, <laughs> maybe a little bit, <laughs> but um, yeah, they're the questions I think that need to be asked going forward and the things that, you know, and they were probably impossible at the time in 2015. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure if enough thought was given or it was just... No, I think we've learnt lessons, Richard. I think that's yeah. that's true. As I said before, legacy was an after-the-fact uh, discussion, uh, whereas this time around it's actually already occurred. We've already been to Parliament. There's a very dedicated legacy plan. Mm-hmm. And the I'm hoping that the stars are aligning. Um, it's totally different to the Asian Cup in the sense that even before the, the announcement, Immediately after the announcement, um, the metrics leading into the Women's World Cup are significantly different from the um, global broadcast to 400,000 more female participants by 27. Mm. The fact that it's feeding into an Asian-Pacific step up, these sort of environmental factors, um, there'll be 3,000 more jobs, the contribution to the GDP much greater this time around, 320 million plus. These all help us put the narrative to government and not be embarrassed about our sport. I think we have a little bit of an inferiority complex still. Um, I know that commercially, sponsors talking to us at head office, they're really interested in a couple of things. That is, the national teams, and Matildas are very um, get a lot of traction, and grassroots community football. That's where a lot of corporates want to position their brand. And what better sport to do it than football, because it's the one that connects to the most communities around Australia. So we're getting the ear of government. We've actually seen it already. Um, we've turned soil in WA in South Australia with Homes of Football, so that's good for those organisations. Here in Victoria, we're fairly uh, down the track and advanced uh, with Football Victoria and the home of the Matildas. And we've already commenced um, the lobbying and the business case around a national home of football so that come 2023, we will not be able to look each other in the eye and point and say, that's the physical legacy of, yeah. of a women's world cup. That's good to hear because I, you know, to, to tie it in with 2015, if the legacy of 2023 is that if a, a young boy or girl turns up at a soccer club, a football club after that, having been inspired by seeing that, and it's easier, better, cheaper, you know, the pathways improved than it was after watching Ange run, run up and down the sidelines like a madman <laughs> in 2015, if it's easier for that kid than to... Ma- that, to me, is a solid legacy. Yeah, and we've done the, the analysis behind it. You know, Only one in five clubs have actually got female-friendly facilities, and, and the governments are aware of that. So we can actually tell them where and which electorates they're short. So it's a much more sophisticated and detailed uh, discussion at this time. The recent Times has given us has been a, provide a timely contrast in how Australia views major events. Uh, just under a year ago, where... Australia and New Zealand won the co-hosting rights to the 2023 World Cup. And only a few months ago where uh, it, the reports came out that uh, Brisbane was in the box seat to host the 2032 uh, Olympics. And I'm not sure about you guys, but in, in the mainstream media, there was a sense in my mind of a greater euphoria, greater uh, coverage around the Olympics in, in some ways. Um so uh, football has played a huge role in terms of uh, in terms of the Olympics historically. JD, I might throw this one uh, to you in terms of football's contribution and we'll move on to the uh, the, the potential legacies as well from the, t- the 2023 uh, World Cup. Yeah, that's another dimension is that football's played such a prominent role within the Olympic movement. I mean, obviously football's greatest stage doesn't fix, feature within the Olympics per se, at least in the men's Olympics and women's Olympic in terms of women's uh, football, absolutely it does. But yeah, in 1956, the largest event was the soccer final, football final at the MCG. Um, in Sydney 2000, we kicked off the tournament at the MCG with Australia versus Italy. And, and historically, the largest attended event at every single Olympics since football was introduced was football. Some great footballing moments also happened during the Olympics, the 1988 Olympics in Seoul, um, Australia beat Yugoslavia in the first game and they were a fancied gold medal contender. We beat them and went through to the, the quarterfinals. Uh, we had the gold medal, uh, uh, sorry, a bronze medal playoff in 1992. So some of our best football moments too have also occurred 
during those tournaments. And Ned Zelich goal that qualified us for that tournament is folkloric within football. Yet again, football's role within the Olympic movement within Australia, in, in any cases, has always been uh, very shallow or certainly not uh, embraced as, as part of the real feats of success that we've had. Ange, can we get your views? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I again, I, I think this whole sort of um, um, legacy aspect, I mean, I, I, I get where sort of Richard's coming from in terms of, you know, the... You know, people don't necessarily, uh, you know, ride this wave of euphoria to the great beyond in terms of the impact it has. But I just look at it from my perspective. I still think that the, the actual sport and the person and, and how they're sort of perceived does make an impact in, in society. So another example, you know, Chris and I are a couple of, kids raised by Greek parents. The only reason we played golf was because of Greg Norman. No other reason. There was nothing else pushing us, well, I should say badly, to be fair, but there was nothing else pushing us to that sport but seeing mm-hmm. the great white shark. I like it. A lot. Greg Norman! Tell me about it. That had, that had no relevance in my household. I could not speak to my father about golf. He would... He'd, give me a backhander even if I suggested it, right? But sitting in front of that screen and, and the way the great white shark was portrayed, we all got out, all of us, and it was, you know, four or five Greek kids playing golf. It shouldn't happen. But there was that that was the, the impact that that had. Football can have a greater impact. I'll tell you why. Because once you start playing the game, irrespective of your age, it is – it does stick to you. So if we can get, and that's why we've all never had a problem about kids playing the game or at grassroots level. And that's why it's appealing to government. That's, I get all that. And, and I understand all that, but that's always existed. My thing is, well, how can we create the Greg Norman so that it, that impact is long lasting, that that impact has, uh, uh, goes beyond in, in legacy in terms of the tangible material things of more corporate responsive, more government backing, but gets into the soul of the country where people want to be you know the closest we have is that John Aloisi moment and that has an impact because when you talk to Jackson Irvine he clearly remembers that moment and that inspired him so there is something there that I don't think we've taken advantage of as 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 a football community to understand that that's the biggest part of the legacy when we're talking about 2023 I can tell you something now that it will be a hit it will be an unbelievable tournament you will have everybody watching it. the whole nation even mainstream media AFL people they will love it because they've all got daughters they've all got uh, people who will be dragging them and they'll love it because of what they see the spectacle it is it'll be a fantastic tournament it'll be a fantastic games what's our legacy from that going to be apart from that feel-good factor and to me, is to make sure that if it's a Sam Kerr or whoever it is, they get raised to that level of a Don Bradman or, or whoever it is in 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 the minds of Australian people, so that that's how we raise the game to that to that legitimacy. And that comes from us. It won't come from an outside source. That comes from us raising them up. That's the legacy I'm talking about. Because when you have that sort of legacy. Again, I'll go back to my Greg Norman. I guarantee you the impact Greg Norman had on golf in this country on why are my mates buying look memberships to golf clubs? Seriously, mate. It shouldn't <laughs> be happening. It should not be happening. Not the way we were brought up, but it does. And I'm telling you, it starts from that. And football has never had that legacy, even though we have had opportunities to do it. Yep. We've just never capitalised Can I make one? It's not a counterpoint, but it's probably a complementary point. The reason the Greg Norman boom works so well in Australia is because Australia has the best public golf courses in the world. So when Greg Norman came along, you could wander over to Northcote Municipal or whatever and pay, play for 10 bucks. Tiger Woods in America, there's no equivalence in South Central LA or whatever, and it didn't have that same effect. And that, that's, that's just kind of a consequence of having the infrastructure. Mm. Coincidentally, it wasn't built because of Greg Norman, but when Norman came along... All the people who wanted to play could go to Wattle Park and hit it off those plastic mats or or join a bigger course if it was there. So that's a, it's a complementary point that, yes, it does create that swell. But I guess my point too is the underlying things have to be there as well, whether it's the grassroots investment or the infrastructure. 
Otherwise, you don't take advantage of it. And the kids turn up at Little Ass and don't like it and go away. So that's what yeah. football, a challenge for football is. I think, David, you need a, the catalyst that Ange is talking about. Cadell Evans, the same in cycling. Mm-hmm. He's born to all these mammals on Beach Road. But, um, and then you need the infrastructure underneath it to trap it and keep them in there. So it's not just a short-term uh, influx and then it, they flow out and, that, and life goes on. I think that's the secret. The two need to go hand in hand. Boys, it's been a fascinating discussion. I want to get your final observations. JD, I'll give you the option of going first or last. I'll go first. I'll go okay. first, David. Thank you. I'll, I'll leave the last words to more esteemed gentlemen than I. I think that, that full football legacy is a really important discussion point. I think this. Well, I think what you've raised here is really enlightening, this notion of combining the, the folklore of heroes, of creating heroes like a Don Bradman in the Sam Kerrs, which I think we can do and we must do, but that must be complemented with a an infrastructure um, that can bring it to life. You know, it, these are points that are really well made. So I think that's the first step of this. The second step for me is what does, what's the broader national legacy, you know, beyond that transcends football. And my argument is there is a nexus between our embrace of football as, a, as an Australian community and the role of Australia within the global community over the next generation. And the role that we choose to play as a nation, as a progressive nation potentially, or a nation that's going to take the challenges of the future head on, are linked with our embrace of football. So we can put our heads in the stand and pretend there's no climate change or pretend that we can, you know, pretend that the future looks like the 1970s with a cell phone. Or we can actually create a really exciting, prosperous future for Australia within Asia. And football sits at the heart of that. And that's the ultimate legacy I'd see out of the 2023 World Cup. Yes, it's about embedding football as a legitimate part of Australia, which it isn't, unfortunately. It's, it's been delegitimized, created as a legitimate part of the Australian culture, but then build on that and help football create the sort of Australia that we need to be to meet the challenges of the future. Chris Nicker? Yeah, I agree with those sentiments. I mean, the challenge from my perspective and head office perspective um, is to coordinate the, the desperate parts of the, of the football ecosystem so they're rowing in the one direction. Um, and that means telling our story a lot better to government and to the extent that governments want to be internationally facing and building relationships, then our sport does it better than anybody else as far as connectivity. We're talking about gender equality. I mean, JD's been at the forefront there with the Matildas and that. I mean, that resonated around the world. And as we move culturally, greater awareness about female sport and just communities generally, we can actually sell a very uh, powerful narrative to government. Um, And that's what we need to do over the next two, three years. Richard Hines. Yeah, I just think it's really encouraging that we're having this discussion. I just think um, legacy, as, as I've said, I think it's overlooked, taken for granted in various elements. And I think, you know, just the, the discussion itself, the fact that Chris is obviously involved in it and it's something that's been really carefully thought out is really encouraging. And I hope that, you know, eight years after 2015, you know, in 2023, the equivalent, your equivalents aren't saying, oh, we didn't really think of that at the time. I think it, that, that, that groundswell that Ange talks about, that feeling of, you know, goodwill towards the sport translates into really um, physical elements that, that improve the game for everyone. Ange Postacoglu. Yeah, look, uh, if I see another AFL club trying to sell themselves in China and <laughs> politicians politicians jumping on that bandwagon and not understanding the opportunity that exists within football, I mean, I, I've been very vocal about it. And and it's not because, and people will know, it's not because I hate the AFL. It's got nothing to do with it. I, I, I'm a cult man through and through. People know that about me. Part of my thing when I was a national team coach was to show people, you know what, you can love football in, in Australia and also love all the other sports. But that that notion that when I still, up until recently, obviously, when I was living in Australia, every boardroom I went into, every government office I went into, and, and I'd sit there and I'd talk with people of influence and they'd say, well, you know, my background's in rugby union or my background's in rugby league or AFL, but, you know, my kids play football. I really like it. It's a good game. And I'm going, mate, you've got no idea what you're missing here. You want to engage with Asia. You want to engage with the international community. Have your Indigenous sports. They're fantastic. We love them. We love the, the G on a Thursday night when Carlton beat the Tigers. I know it hasn't happened for a while. But anyway, <laughs> we love all those things. But 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 you're missing an opportunity here that 
you know what, if you walk into a boardroom and you have Timmy Cahill next to you or you have an Aaron Moy next to you, Aaron Moy's currently in China. Next time a politician goes over there, why don't you just bring him into that meeting? It's going to get you a hell of a lot more traction. Trust me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm living it now. I get more respect and credibility living here now because of, we won the Asian Cup and I'm known as the Asian Cup winning coach than I ever did in, in, in my home country. They're the opportunities. And with the World Cup, the whole world will be looking. There's your there's your engagement point. So you know, I'd almost I'd almost charge the politicians. You know what? You want to come to our games. You want to get a picture with Sam Kerr. Well, there's a price to be paid for that. And that price is that you make sure you use our sport as your conduit to, to everything you do internationally from now on. And and you know that that needs to be still you know habit home. And and I think JD's point's the most important one. It makes for a better country. It makes for a better Australia. Our game can make us a better country if if we really embrace it. And, and unfortunately, um, we're still seen as the outsider. Some of us still see ourselves as the outsiders in our own game. So they're the kind of things that we have an opportunity to bridge, I think, with this with this World Cup. I think there's there's a hell of an opportunity there for us as a code and us as a country to, to, to have some real growth. Guys, thanks so much for your contributions today. Look out for the final Football Belongs podcast episode. Uh, The other eight episodes are available on Optusport platforms or Spotify. Thanks for joining us. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.